We are coming to you from the Women's Health Annual Visit Meeting in Washington, D.C., and this is ReachMD. I'm your host, Alicia Sutton, and joining me today is Dr. Joel Weinthal, pediatric oncologist and medical director of the Stem Cell Transplant Laboratory of the Medical City Dallas Hospital and clinical associate professor of pediatrics at Texas Tech University Health Science Center. We're going to talk about regenerative medicine. Welcome, Dr. Weinthal. We're glad to have you back on ReachMD. Great to be here. Good. So regenerative medicine, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue in everyday language. So give us an explanation of what that is about. So regenerative medicine is a new technology or new therapy that uses stem cells to treat diseases at this point where there are no other treatments that are currently available. No medical therapies or physical therapies that can help patients. That's a pretty broad scope there. Does it apply to certain areas? Well, I mean, the the areas that are under the most active investigation are in heart disease, where cells can be differentiated into cardiac stem cells, uh, in diabetes to produce new islet cells to produce insulin, in bone and tissue to try and repair joints and bone. And the list goes on and on in in nervous system diseases, traumatic brain injury, cerebral palsy, uh, hearing loss, and I could go on and on, liver disease, kidney disease. So the the potential is really awesome at this point. But I, I emphasize that this is really more in the research realm or clinical trial realm at this point. Well, clearly an area of expertise for you. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on. Well, right now, my focus is still on the clinical transplants are sort of the more conventional therapies. So I treat children that have leukemia, lymphoma, and blood diseases like sickle cell anemia and aplastic anemia. Some of the things that we're interested in is trying to expand collections and banking technologies so that these cells can be available in basic science laboratories for a lot of the research that we're talking about. And you you just presented at this Women's Health meeting. Do you find any confusion over regenerative medicine? Does it mean different things to different people? Well, I think it it is a new word to most people. So I think, you know, I I don't think it means anything to anyone when they first hear it. And I think there's a lot of excitement when you talk about the potential to treat all these diseases where there are no treatments right now. So it's nice to be able to introduce people to this whole new field. Right. How did you find yourself uh, deeply entrenched in this? Well, I think that I started out really very fortunately and somewhat serendipitously right there at the very beginning of cord blood transplants. My team did the first cord blood transplant in California and then the first one in Texas after I moved to Texas. So we were sort of there at the beginning of cord blood transplants. And now the field is more than 25 years old. And we've seen the growth from using it in a research setting to it becoming clinical practice and now looking at expanded uses like regenerative medicine. Interesting. So let's talk about cord blood for a moment. Is it being used more in transplant, you'd mentioned that, or more toward regenerative or both? Well, I think it's being used in both. I mean, in the terms of number of uses or potential clinical uses, regenerative medicine indications dwarf the traditional transplant indications because the incidence of diseases, fortunately, for my career where you have to do a conventional transplant is relatively small. I mean, childhood leukemia, lymphomas, and even in adult medicine, most of these disorders are relatively rare compared to the breadth of transplant medicine or regenerative medicine. And I think I'd give you an example. If you look at 
the incidence of cerebral palsy or type 1 diabetes, they're logarithmically more than childhood leukemia. Makes sense. Does everybody respond quickly to this form of therapy? Well, I again want to emphasize that the regenerative medicine indications are clinical trials and research at this point. So most of the data is really phase one or safety data at this point. And most of the response data is really a lot of animal models or preclinical data. So I, I don't think that we can generalize any response data in anything at this point. Interesting. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD, the broadcast network for medical professionals. And our guest is Dr. Joel Weinthal, and we're discussing regenerative medicine. So obviously this doesn't come without some ethical considerations, um, stem cells, regenerative. What objections do you hear and what do you respond to them? Right. Well, I think the main question that usually comes up is where are you getting the stem cells from? And that's really the, the, the ethical concern. And as we addressed a little bit in the uh, session earlier today, there's very little controversy to using umbilical cord blood stem cells because this is a product that would be medical waste if it isn't used or, or cryopreserved for these kinds of indications. It's available at every single delivery and most of the time is literally just thrown in the garbage. Um, stem cells uh, that are obtained from other sources, um, or uh, you know, from fertilized embryos, so-called embryonic stem cells, are much more controversial. But those are not really being used in clinical trials at this point. So, the kind of cells we're talking about in regenerative medicine trials are really not particularly clinically controversial. At right. This point. So, for that type then. Talk about the collection of it, um, and from there, how do you store it? Cord blood, there's only one time and one place it can be collected, and that's in the delivery room. And it can either be collected right after the baby is delivered while the placenta is in utero and the cord is sort of there, and you can just cannulize the cord with a needle and just drain the cord blood right into a collection bag. The other option is after the placenta is delivered, you can drain the blood from the placenta into a collection bag. So it's really very straightforward and very easy and most of the time all you really need is a collection kit which is provided by cord blood banks and the collection kit is really a needle and some anticoagulant as well as a sterile bag. Interesting. And storage of it? Storage of it goes to a special processing facility and cord blood bank. And this is where I really emphasize that one of the most important parts of this whole science and world, because when you're saving cord blood, you're preserving a live organ. So I think of it like a heart, a kidney, a liver, and this has to be cryopreserved potentially for years and years and years. So this is not like freezing a steak in your freezer or putting the vegetables in there to be used <laughs> later. This is a live organ, and it takes a lot of expertise to freeze this so that the cells stay viable and biologically active later on. What do you think is uh, driving it most at this point in terms of you, you have a pregnant woman and a physician? Is it the patient asking for it? Is it the clinician making a recommendation for it? Well, my feeling is that I think that there, there certainly is a lot of discussion among expectant parents about should I save cord blood or not. It may be in the lay literature and magazines, and I think it's incumbent upon 
uh, OBGYNs and healthcare providers to have educational materials available and have some knowledge so they can give information to parents about cord blood collections and, and options for banking. And hopefully um, today we gave some of those options and they're, they're readily available on the education sites and even from the lectures we give, which are publicly available. Absolutely. And on ReachMD, the related information near this activity also is available. So what do you see on the horizon another year from now, five years from now? What's out there? Well, my hope is that some of the clinical trials that are going on using uh, cord blood stem cells and other stem cells in regenerative medicine indications will become mature enough so that they can be reported and real clinical efficacy will be demonstrated. And once we have that, then we can go into much larger clinical trials to see if this can really become standard of care. And hopefully, and this would be my dream as someone that's been in the field, that this will really become a treatment for many, many different conditions where there has been absolutely no treatment available and provide people with better lives and even cure in situations where there was no hope for cure in the past. So let's say you're being interviewed by, let's just say, the New York Times in 10 years, and they ask you, remember when you didn't know this about cord blood? What would that be? I think the main thing would be is there are probably properties that exist within the cord blood stem cell populations that we haven't even tapped yet. For instance, are there cells in there that we can pull out or amplify or use as vectors for gene therapy that are being researched? And hopefully with all the different trials and all the different research and funding that's going on, one of those is going to be a home run. And then we'll say, wow, that's really amazing that this really worked. Nice. Good way to leave that. We are out of time, Dr. Weinthal. We are glad you could join us today. Our listeners, no doubt, gain great information. Thank you. You're welcome. You've been listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, and we're broadcasting from the Women's Health Annual Visit in Washington, D.C. For more information and a full library of medical broadcasts, please visit ReachMD.com. I'm your host, Alicia Sutton, and we'll see you next time.